You are listening to the Resonate Church Sermon Podcast. Resonate is a collegiate church planning network in the Northwest. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at resonate.net. Well, hey, Resonate Church. I'm so happy to be able to be with you wherever you're at today. Uh, my name is Preston Rhodes. I'm the site pastor of Resonate Church here in Missoula, Montana. And it's uh, I'm really thankful for the opportunity uh, to get to continue this reconstruction series with you today. Uh, when I was growing up, my favorite superhero was the Hulk. So if you're if you're unfamiliar with the Hulk or if you've been uh, living under a rock for the last 20 years, the, the general story is that uh, Dr. Bruce Banner was exposed to massive amounts of gamma radiation. So now when he gets angry, he turns into this big uh, muscle-bound green monster called the Hulk. So that's kind of the backstory behind the Hulk. Now, I wasn't a super fan. I didn't like read the comics. I don't, I don't know all the lore, but I did watch all the movies. Uh, I've seen all the movies, and I distinctly remember some of the scenes from, from like the 2003 version of the Hulk shaping my childhood. Like I can remember going out behind our house as I was growing up. Uh, we had a creek back behind the house, and I would jump from one side of the bank to the other pretending to be the Hulk jumping from one side of the canyon to the other. There was a a time in my life when I would have told you that Lou Ferrigno was my favorite actor in the world because only Lou Ferrigno was strong enough to play the Hulk. But as as I've grown up and I've continued watching the Marvel movies that feature the Hulk, it's uh, it's been interesting to watch a, a subtle shift start to happen. It seemed like early on the Hulk was uh, was kind of seen as this giant, uh, violent, dangerous, uh, maniacal rage machine. So then everybody around him, his friends and his romantic interests, their goal was always to calm the Hulk down so that he would return back to his human form. That, that was always their goal. But it seems like in the last in the last 10 or 15 years, uh, there's been this, this subtle, subtle shift in how the Hulk is treated. So, so now, instead of seeing the Hulk as this kind of this wicked inner component of Dr. Banner, uh, the movies have begun to portray the Hulk as m- more of like Banner's true expression. So, so now their goal is not to get him to calm down and return to his human state, but instead to help him live out his inner reality, his Hulk reality. So, so this, this subtle shift has started to happen in the way that we uh, treat the Hulk, the way that these movies treat the Hulk. Now, I'm not trying to overanalyze. Uh, I'm, I'm not trying to make it a bigger deal than it is. If you're the guy that knows all the backstory, you've read all the comics, and you want to tell me why I'm wrong, you can save yourself an email because I'm not going to read it. But I, I think that there's this, this interesting uh, shift happening, and I don't think it's accidental. I think that it's actually an intentional shift that we're starting to see. I, I think that it's actually evidence of a big, fat lie that we have started to believe. And that's the lie that I want to talk to you about today. So today we're going to talk about how do we find our identity. Uh, That's kind of the topic for today. How do we find our identity? Now, if you went down to to Barnes and Nobles and looked for a book to help you answer that question, what kind of answer do you think you would get? I bet if you go down there, you would find row after row of books dedicated to this topic. And, And here's my hot take for the day. I bet those books are all wrong. Now, here's why. Here's why I say that. I think that our popular culture actually believes the wrong meta-narrative. We believe the wrong, like the wrong overarching story of who we are and how we got here. See, in the last, in the last 50 years or so, the predominant meta-narrative in our culture has shifted. So that today, if you asked a random student on one of our campuses, you would probably find that they believe 
that we are, like, like generally, people in our generation generally believe that we are fundamentally good and pure and perfect and innocent at birth. And then we are, uh, and then like things like corrupt society and unjust systems and toxic people actually hurt us and damage us and morph us into untrue versions of ourselves. That's the meta narrative that people on our campus would likely believe today. Now this, this idea is not brand new. We didn't just make it up in the last 50 years. It's been around for a long time. In philosophy, this idea is called tabula rasa. Okay? It means blank slate. And it's the idea that mankind is born innocent. We're born unformed or, or pure. So you can start to see this tabula rasa thinking in uh, Aristotle's treatise on the soul. In about 350 BC, you start to see these ideas crop up. In the 11th century, there's a Persian philosopher named Avicenna who wrote, Human intellect at birth resembled a tabula rasa, a pure potentiality that is actualized through education and comes to know. This was the 11th century AD. But the most thorough expression of tabula rasa, and the one that, uh, that has most shaped our Western culture, is through John Locke in his essay concerning human understanding in 1689. So in it, here's a, here's a quote from John Locke. He writes, Let us suppose the mind to be, as we say, a tabula rasa, void of all characters, without any ideas. How comes it to be furnished? Whence comes it by that vast store which the busy and boundless fancy of man has painted on it with an almost endless variety? When has it all the materials of reason and knowledge? To this I answer in one word, from experience. So what John Locke is saying is that everyone comes into the world pure, as a blank slate, tabula rasa. Our minds are void of all ideas and all inclinations. And then our experiences determine our worldview and our decision. decisions. Uh, in other words, you've probably heard some discussions about nature versus nurture. You're probably familiar with that language. So is someone born with certain proclivities or certain inclinations by their nature or, do they, or are those things placed there by their nurture, by their upbringing? So John Locke would land firmly on the nurture side. He would reject the nature side. And this idea, the, uh, the concept of tabula rasa, has dramatically shaped our thinking in the last 50 years. So stay with me here. This gets a little bit complicated. But if you believe this idea, tabula rasa, that everyone is born as a perfect, pure, and innocent blank slate... And then that our sinfulness and our brokenness is a result of corruption or injustice that has been thrust upon us through our experiences. Okay, If you believe that, if that's your meta-narrative, then when you try to answer the question, how do I find my identity, your immediate response is going to be to try to peel back the layers of damage or pain or influence that the world has inflicted on you to get down to your inner self, your, your truest self. So here's a silly illustration to, to try to show you what I'm saying. Uh, let's say that you have an onion, okay? And you believe that the very center of that onion is perfect and good. But as the onion grows, each subsequent layer adds more dirt and more damage and more imperfection to that onion. And then one day somebody comes up to you and says, what is that onion really like? What would you do? You would start peeling away the layers of dirt and damage and imperfection so that you can get to that perfect inner core. So if you walked into Barnes & Noble's today, I bet that's exactly what you would find. 
row after row of book about of books about self-discovery, about deconstruction, about recovering our true selves, about unhitching ourselves from our cultural baggage. You can try it this week. Go down there and see what you find in that section. So this is the lie that we are addressing this week. The lie is that in order to find my identity, I must look within myself. The lie is in order to find my identity, I must look within myself. But here's the problem. Here's why this is a lie. The Bible says that tabula rasa is wrong. Okay? The Bible says that tabula rasa is wrong. The Bible actually teaches a different meta-narrative. The Bible teaches that when God told Adam and Eve in Genesis that, that they shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The Bible teaches that God wasn't lying when he said that. So when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, when they rebelled against God, in that moment, they died a spiritual death. They became traitors. They were separated from God, and they even began to die physically. And as a result, when Adam and Eve bore children, their children were spiritually dead as well. So because of sin, all people are born spiritually dead. And we see this all over Scripture. Uh, Psalm 51 verse 5 says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. So at conception, we are sinful. We have a sin nature. Uh, Psalm 58 verse 3 says, Even from birth the wicked go astray. From the womb they are wayward, spreading lies. Uh, Paul teaches in Romans 5 verse 12, Sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people, because all sinned. In John chapter 3, Jesus has a whole conversation with Nicodemus about this. Jesus says, Unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus replies, How can a man be born again when he is old? Can he enter again into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus replies, Unless one is born of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus is saying there's no righteousness in the first birth, the, the physical birth that we have all experienced. Righteousness comes from the second birth, the, the spiritual birth. You must be born again to inherit the kingdom. So the Bible teaches that we are not born perfect and pure. We are not born tabula rasa, but we are instead born selfish and sinful and depraved. And we all, at one level, we know this, right? We say this all the time, but no parent teaches their one-year-old to hit and bite and steal. No, no parent is doing that. Those kids do that naturally by their nature. Parents go to great lengths to teach their children to be kind and generous and nonviolent because you have to instruct a child to do what is counter to their nature. Charles Spurgeon once wrote, As salt flavors every drop of the Atlantic, so does sin affect every atom of our nature. It is so sadly there, so abundantly there, that if you cannot detect it, you are deceived. So then this, this broken and corrupt world that we live in is not in opposition to our perfection, but is a result of our imperfection. Does that make sense? The world that we live in is not in opposition to our perfection, but is a result of our imperfection. If you're a Christian, then this is your meta-narrative. So now, when you set out to answer the question, how do I find my identity, you recognize that the answer is not 
to peel back layers to try to get to your inner self, but instead is to look outside yourself at the one who created you. Uh, my wife and I live with a few other couples here in Missoula, and all the ladies in the house love mason jars. Now, I can't, for the life of me, explain it. Uh, mason jars don't stack well in the cupboards. They don't fit in cup holders. They're hard to drink out of, but here, what I've learned is uh, none of that is important because mason jars are cute. And that's what matters. That, that's all that matters about a mason jar. So we have a house full of mason jars. And we use them both for drinks and for decorations because here's what mason jars do really well. They show you what is inside them. They display what's inside them. So you can put string lights or some twigs or a candle or whatever you want inside a mason jar and it will proudly display that to everybody in the room. So here's what I'm trying to say in this sermon. God did not make you as a mason jar. He made you as a mirror. He didn't make you as a mason jar. He made you as a mirror. You were made to reflect the image and glory of God in the context that you are in. So your identity is a reflection of the God that you serve and the life that he has given you. Your true identity is not found inside yourself. And that's why in the Christian worldview, you are infinitely valuable. You have meaning and purpose and identity, and those things have been given to you by God. You, you have value and meaning and purpose and identity only in relation to the God who created you. So, if, if to find our identity, we must look outside ourselves to the one who created us. Uh, we're going to try that. With the rest of our time today, we're going to try that. So, let's look at a few different aspects of God. And then we're going to see if those will show us who we are. Does that make sense? A few aspects of God and see if that shows us who we are. Again, we have to notice our identities are derived from God. Okay? So, so God is the headwaters. We are downstream. Our identities are derived from God. So we're going to look at three aspects of God and see what that means for our identities. Number one, first aspect of God today. God is creator. God is creator. In Genesis chapter 1, God creates everything. Uh, Genesis 1 has the eight let there be statements. So let there be light, let there be sky, let there be land, let there be vegetation, let there be sun and moon, let there be sea creatures, let there be animals on the land. And then in the pinnacle of his creating work, God says, let us make mankind in our image. That means that mankind is unique in all of creation, in that we bear the image of God. We're not just some higher form of animal, we're a unique and distinct creation. Uh, if you want to get me like unreasonably angry about something, talk about an animal as if it is a human. Uh, like if my wife posted on social media a picture of us and our dogs and she used the word fur babies, those dogs would be sold by morning. I don't mess around with that kind of thing. Or, or when people get more sad about the dog dying in the movie than the people, I always think you got a really weird view of human value. So knowing that God is our creator and that we were made in his image is important because it means that mankind is distinct among creation. But it also means that mankind has intrinsic value. That means that men and women are equal in value. Black people and white people are equal in value. Old people and young people are equal in value. It was this doctrine, the, the doctrine of the Imago Dei, the image of God, 
that compelled William Wilberforce to give his life to fighting the slave trade in Britain. Because if all of mankind is made in God's image, then every single one of us has value and worth intrinsically, but by virtue of our being, not extrinsically by virtue of our social status or our achievement. So that's the first aspect of God that creates your identity. Because God is creator, you are made in his image. Because God is creator, you are made in his image. Number two, second aspect of God. God is king. <clears throat> God is king. So let's go back to Genesis chapter 1. Uh, remember, God creates everything. And then in verse 26, he says, uh, verse 26 starts saying, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So when God created mankind, he gave us a task. Rule and subdue. Rule over the creatures. Fill the earth and subdue it. God creates man and then he tells him, you see all this stuff that I've made? You oversee it. You manage it. This is the language of kings and queens, ruling and subduing. We were made to rule alongside God and on God's behalf. We were made to steward God's creation. But we all know what happens next in the story. Uh, instead of being stewards in God's kingdom, they want to be kings of their own kingdom. So they create an alternate kingdom. The kingdom of sin and death, the kingdom that we live in today. Uh, sometimes people wonder why, wonder how God could allow bad things to happen in the world, as if God is imposing outside hardship on an otherwise perfect and peaceful world. But, but we have to remember our meta narrative. When horrible things happen, God isn't injecting bad into the good, He's just giving us over to what we already want. So when we ask that question, we're kind of like the uh, the five-year-old that wants to bake a loaf of bread, but tells her parents, uh, I don't want to do it your way, I want to do it my way. And when the bread comes out of the oven and it's horrible, she looks at her parents and said, why did you let this horrible bread get baked? We want to reject God's kingship, but demand his mercy to us. Our world is broken and painful and wicked because we rejected God's kingship and God said, have it your way. The wicked state of our world is our fault. If you turn on the news and watch for five minutes, this is what the world looks like when we are king and queen, when we define what is right and wrong. But thankfully, God is gracious and loving and kind. So out of all of rebellious humanity, he chooses a people and he says, I will be their king. I will rescue them and sustain them. But once again, generation after generation choose that they don't want God to be king. They, they want to be their own kings. So they disobey his commands. They begin building their own kingdom. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, they even get to a point where they tell God, we want a human king to rule our kingdom. And how does that work out for them? Well, if you know the story of the Old Testament, you know the answer is very bad. It's becoming clear that no matter how hard we try, we cannot be king over ourselves. 
And the cycle keeps happening over and over and over. The people of God obey for a time, then rebel against God, and then everything gets really rough for them. And then they come back to God for a time, and then they rebel. The cycle happens over and over again. And all the while, these people, the, the Jewish people, hoped that God would send a Savior into the world to come and establish a kingdom, to come establish His kingdom. They wanted Him to come and restore order. And as the Old Testament ends, that's where the story leaves off, with the desperate Israelites longing for a Savior. And then, uh, 400 years later, a fiery young prophet named Jesus walks into the synagogue in Jerusalem, and this is the first thing Jesus says. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is here. Jesus is saying, hey, pay attention. The kingdom of God that you've been talking about and prophesying about for thousands of years is here. And this isn't just the first thing that Jesus says. It's the most frequent thing that he says. Over 50 times in the book of Matthew alone, Jesus talks about the kingdom of God. He talks about the kingdom of God more than anything else, more than heaven and hell, more than sex, more than money. He talks about the kingdom of God. So what does that mean for us? What does it mean for us when Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand? It means that if God has a kingdom, then God is a king. And if God is a king, then he has people who are meant to, to live under his reign. And what are those people called? Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 19, gives us some language for those people. Verse 19, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Christ has come to establish his kingdom, and what does he call his people? Ambassadors. We are ambassadors. So an ambassador, here's the definition of an ambassador. An ambassador is an accredited diplomat sent by a country as its official representative to a foreign country. Okay, An accredited diplomat sent by one country as its foreign representative, uh, as its representative to a foreign country. So when God calls us his ambassadors, it means that we are his official representatives in this foreign land. We're not part of this world. We're ambassadors from another world. This is why we can be bold Christians on a campus that largely scoffs at Christianity because we serve a different king. This is why we don't have to put our hope in some political candidate because we serve a different king. This is why we can obey God even when we know it means that we could lose family or friends because we serve a different king. So because God is king, we are his ambassadors. That's our second observation. Because God is king, we are his ambassadors. Number three, our last one. God is Father. God is Father. So throughout the Old Testament, God is talked about a lot of different ways. He's a creator, he's a deliverer, he's a king, he's a judge, he is Lord. For thousands of years, this is how the Israelites, the people of Israel, had been referring to God. He was largely a faraway commanding officer. In the entire New Testament and all of the Jewish writings from that time, there is not a single mention of God as Father. But when Jesus comes, 
he says something absolutely crazy. In Matthew chapter 6, the disciples are asking Jesus how they should pray to God. And here's what Jesus says, and you're going to be familiar with this. Matthew 6, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So, so did you catch how Jesus started that prayer? He said, our Father. Not even just my Father, but our Father. This was a totally new way to talk about God. And then immediately after this, Jesus starts telling parables where God is the Father figure. In the parable of the prodigal son, uh, it's a story about a son who demands his inheritance from his father. He runs off, he squanders all of his wealth, and he comes crawling back to his father, expecting to be judged or to be made a servant in his house. But the father runs to greet him. He, he throws his arms around him. He throws a party for him because his son has returned. God is beginning to be painted as a father figure. In Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul says, We haven't received the spirit of fear but have received the spirit of adoption by which we cry, Abba, Father. We don't have to be afraid anymore because God is our Father. And how did this happen? How does God become our Father? Well, John chapter 1, verse 12 says, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. So all of those who place their faith in Jesus become children of God. God. God adopted us. He adopts us as His children, right? Romans 8 says that we've been given a spirit of adoption in Christ. So before Jesus, we were children of wrath, children of darkness. But because of Jesus, we have been adopted into God's family. We are children of God through adoption. So because God is our Father, we are His sons and daughters. Because God is our Father, we are His sons and and daughters. Now, I want to recognize that for many of us, this word uh, father is difficult for us. Uh, for many of us, when we think of father, we think of abusive or self-centered or destructive or angry or disinterested or unloving or just gone. Because of sin, the role of father has become broken. And for many of us, that's all that we know. It's all that we've experienced of a father. But I want, to, I want to tell you something today. God is not like that. God's not like your dad. If you had a really good dad, God is far better. And if you had a really bad dad, God is far better. Uh, the, the true picture of fatherhood is found in God, not in your dad. So, so don't let the brokenness of your father change the way that you see God. So as I close... Uh, I want to encourage us, I want to encourage you to stop finding your identity in yourself. Stop finding your identity in your popularity, in your success, in your grades, in your money, in your relationship status, in your athleticism, in your good behavior. Because your truest self is not found deep inside you. Your truest self is not found deep inside you. So stop looking down at yourself and start looking up at God. So, for real, quit with the, uh, I'm an ENFP, Libra, Enneagram 4, vegan, dog mom nonsense. Quit with it. You're a sinner saved by grace. You are made in the image of God. You are an ambassador of the Most High King. And you are a son or daughter of your Father in Heaven.
be a mirror that reflects those glorious truths, not a mason jar that tries to display what is inside. Our identities are found not inside of us, but outside of us. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you uh, for creating us to reflect your glory, reflect your image. Thank you for not leaving us out in our rebellion, but for sending your Son to save us. Now, would you help us get our eyes off ourselves? Would you teach us to find our identity uh, in, in the rock-solid reality of you? God, we love you. We trust you. We pray all this in your Son's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Resonate Church Sermon Podcast. If you are a college student in the Northwest, or if you simply want to see college students come to know Jesus, please connect with us by visiting Resonate.net.